Turby, what are you doing? Get back up on the couch. Why are you here? <laughs> <laughs> this is prison, uh, Truby. You don't want to be here. Friday, February 1st, 2019, and this is the Dutch News Podcast, your weekly chance to catch up with what's been going on here in the Netherlands. I'm Molly Quell, Dutch News contributing editor and anti-gold standard activist, and with me today is Gordon Derrick, my fellow contributing editor at Dutch News and Prison Breaker, and Paul Peters, master student and Twitter commerce survivor. Molly, what are you, a anti-gold standard activist? What's happened here? Do you guys know what the gold standard is? Yes. Yeah, yes. So, uh, so I've, been, I've been reading this book called Lords of Finance, and it's about like the history of central banking. And it's basically just talking about how terrible the gold standard was and how like ridiculous it was that they stuck around on the gold standard mm. for so long and how it contributed to all of these sort of like societal ills in Europe and the US. And the, and is, the that, early... is that why you told me about uh, JP Morgan starting yeah, this a is why, uh, central bank? Because of uh, that. Although I had heard the JP Morgan story before, which was which is an interesting one. But it's a very interesting book. But I've been on like an anti-gold standard sort of rant multiple times on Twitter this week. And... <laughs> Uh, people who are pro the gold standard. Oh, there's still people out there who <laughs> there are pro are. the gold standard. Um, who've learned nothing in, from history. In the Venn yeah. diagram of yeah. people who are absolutely batshit insane and pro the gold standard, it is a circle. So I've been attracting a lot of interesting uh, replies to some mm-hmm. of my, uh, my there tweets. There are pro gold standard activists on Twitter. Yes. Now, are these people also anti-vaxxers and moon I'm sure, deniers? 100%. Yeah. But I, I had a whole rant uh, to my best friend, who's a finance professor, about how the gold standard caused the Holocaust, which was... <laughs> <laughs> Which was some solid, solid ranting work on my part. So. Yeah, well, given, um, I think the last attempt, or the last time the gold standard was imposed in Britain, was uh, by Winston Churchill. Yes. In the uh, 1920s. So there was a good bit of circular business for him, if yeah. indeed you, you think that it uh, started the Second World War. Yeah, yeah, yeah. E- exactly. So, uh, Gordon, while I was being held prisoner by anti <laughs> by pro gold standard activists on Twitter, you were being held prison in, prisoner in an, in an actual prison. So, um, you want to tell us a- about your week? I was actually in prison this yeah. week, yes, because I went to London. London. And these days when you travel to, <laughs> these days when you travel to the UK, it is basically just like visiting prison. You have to queue for hours uh, to, to get in, and um, and then when you're in, everyone is just basically being held captive. But when I was in London, I actually went to a prison because I was invited by uh, the librarian of uh, uh, HMP Thameside to uh, do a reading of my book in uh, to the prison reading book club. And did, it was very interesting. Wow. Did you have a good uh, reception at that Yeah, prison? I did. There's about 15 uh, inmates uh, all in the room, and they were very civil and polite and uh, respectful, and we had a very good discussion. And, of course, because they're in prison, they had time to read the book. Right. <laughs> so unlike every other book reading you've been yeah. to where no one has actually read your book. Exactly. And did they invite you to stay? No, they didn't. Uh, oh. certainly. You were allowed so to go. That was, okay. yeah, they, they let me out at the end after visiting hour. Yeah. And, Paul, you also managed to get out of the Twitter Comrade this week. Yeah, I did. Do you want to tell us about your experience there? Uh, yeah, I had my last exam on... Uh, Tuesday night and I uh, saw on the um, on the Tweede Kamer agenda that they had uh, quite a few interesting debates on Wednesday so I decided to go there we will talk about that later in the podcast yes. but then um, the first debate was kind of boring so I left and I noticed that they had a little gift shop so I went inside and it was the best gift shop ever because everything was very cheap Wow! it was uh, all very nice all the, 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 the coat of arms for the Tweede Kamer was engraved and everything so uh, could I invite you to have a <laughs> Tweede Kamer Mint. I would love oh, a Tweede wow. Kamer Mint. I tell you what, I've lived in The Hague for five years. I had no idea that Tweede Kamer had a gift shop. Well, but I will now go. There were journalists who work in the Tweede Kamer who <laughs> didn't know there was a gift shop. So, here. 
Thank you. Let's Just try these. Hint. We are now eating, um, for, for the benefit of people listening, eating Twitter camera mints. Twitter camera mints. Which are tiny. They're very tiny. They're very tiny. Yeah. And you can only have one. Mm. Yeah, of we're course. Dutch. Of course, yes. And they're sugar-free, so they don't taste like anything. They don't really taste like mint. Either. No. Mm. Delicious. Mm. Thank you for bringing this Very back nice. from your experience. A it's step up definitely from the last thing that um, I was offered to eat uh, on this podcast, which was a lavender strawberry. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a, it's, a, it's a step up from the, the gifts that you brought us uh, back from London, Gordon. So thanks for that. Well, you had to put your order in sooner. I had 22 hours in London. You always you, you asked me you 20 hours into the visit. I didn't know I should, that we had to be you. specified. Yeah. So uh, we um, have an interesting, there was an interesting article in, uh, in what was this in RTL News? About the average Dutchman? No, it's uh, it, it was done by Quest Magazine. Oh, Quest Magazine, mm. yeah, yes. that's right. Um, because Quest Magazine uh, used countless of statistical data from the CBS, the Centraal Bureau for the Statistique, to draw up a composition sketch of the most ordinary Dutch men and women uh, in the country. Yeah, sort of poking fun at the endless poli- politicians who sort of say, like, yes, mm. I'm fighting yeah. for the average, the ordinary I'm Dutchman, the, the ordinary average man, Dutchman. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, and the uh, average Dutchman is 41 years old and uh, three kilos overweight, and the average Dutch woman is 42 and a half years old and one and a half kilos overweight. I don't know why they uh, wanted to emphasize uh, how much they were weighing. No, yeah. I mean, that's weird. Did it mention their height? That's more interesting. Uh, I think, no, they the didn't. No, no. Yeah. no. First, m- maybe Quest Magazine did, but the article mm. I read on RTL News, they, they didn't. Mm-hmm. And um, Quest Magazine, uh, after the uh, publication, they uh, asked readers to, to nominate people uh, who are living in the Netherlands who look like the sketches. It turns out that Sander van der Poel and Sonja Veldman are the most average Dutch men and women. Those and are some super Dutch names. They're super Dutch names. Yeah, they are. Yeah. Yeah. Are, they, are they married? No, they're not married. Uh, no, they are mean. two uh, independent people. Uh, but yeah. so, so now they have the uh, questionable uh, honor to call themselves the most yeah. mediocre person in the country. They, they, they should go on a date and put it on. Uh, in fact, this will happen now, won't they? Yeah. John Demol, one of yes, these TV is... channels, will set up a date between these two <laughs> yeah. people. They do <laughs> quite look like the sketches. We'll include the uh, image, I'm sure, in something this week. So uh, you can, the listeners yeah, can take a look. I know that Sanders has got a ridiculous amount of hair gel, so yeah, he does indeed <laughs> conform with the average man. But that is not our Alpef of the week. Discussed no. using this as the alpef of the week, yes, but it wasn't really alpefy. No, not really. What was our alpef of the week? Well, a contestant on the game show Per Seconde Wijzer lost 7,500 euros after he chose a question in a category sport, but got a music question. In the game show, contestants uh, can choose a category they know a lot about, and uh, each round uh, questions become increasingly more difficult. Uh, Jeroen Meerwijk asked for a sport question, but then uh, Jeroen had to name the artist of the song the, the program played. Uh, the game show claimed it was a sport question because the music they played was from artists who performed in the halftime shows of the Super Bowl. Uh, but Jeroen did not know anything about music and got all the answers wrong. For example, he, he thought that a song by U2 was from Prince. Right, okay. So he that's, didn't... Yeah. That's bad. The, this, yeah. this is what happens if you listen to Dutch radio your whole life. Yeah, you know he, nothing about real music. nothing about real yeah. music. That's true. So, um, yeah, uh, people on, inter- on Twitter and on the internet were outraged and some even accused the game show of cheating. Uh, someone uh, even started a crowdfunding campaign for Jeroen so that he could get his uh, 7,500 euros. And as of now, as of today, almost 4,000 euros uh, has been donated. This week, we will be discussing new political donation rules, the cancelled climate debate, how you can get a 95 euro fine starting in July, and for the discussion, we'll update you on the child amnesty plan. 
Political parties are to be banned from accepting donations from outside the European Union. The Cabinet agreed last week to impose the ban to try to cut down unwanted foreign interference in domestic politics. Home Affairs Minister Kaisha Olonkhan said, It is very important for a political party to be transparent about where your money comes from. However, she rejected the recommendation of a government commission to outlaw foreign funding altogether, arguing that went too far. Quote, There was foreign interference in both the Italian and French elections, and we should not be naive about this in the Netherlands, said Olonkhan. So, um... If some Belgium dude wants to donate uh, to whomever, mm-hmm. then that's apparently not foreign, unwanted foreign interference. But when someone else does it from, I don't know. Why would India? anyone outside of the Netherlands want to donate to, I mean, I guess, are they literally like, is it also like Dutch people who live outside of the Netherlands that are caught up in this? Because then, then I guess I could understand uh, the no, argument. No, but if Dutch you're just a random Italian guy, why do you want to donate to a Dutch election anyway? Uh, Gordon, do you have any idea why someone from, I don't know, Israel would donate uh, yeah, money or, to a political party? Or, or in the why Netherlands? somebody from the United States or, yeah, or from Russia might uh, be interested yeah. in uh, Dutch domestic politics? Who knows? But nevertheless, this seems to be a problem. In fact, so much for, I think there was so much concern about it. If you remember at the last election, they actually banned all electronic voting and they decided to do all the voting on paper because there was worried about interference. interference. Well, they yeah. did it many years ago, but they decided to to keep it this way because of the interference. Exactly, yeah. They said, but they started to introduce electronic voting and then they actually uh, reeled it back, didn't they? Because they're worried about that kind of interference and they also think that funding is some kind of interference. There is very little transparency, I find, in uh, party funding uh, in the Netherlands. You tend to find where there's not much transparency that tends to, it tends to be an open door for yeah uh, people to interfere. There was one, uh, there's one party in particular that's uh, impacted by these rules, right, Gordon? There is one party that uh, yeah, is, is affected and it's the party that's always resisted any kind of um, controls um, or regulation of party funding uh, throughout its existence. I, and why that would is, that be? I assume be? you are referring to the Partei van de Dira. Uh, no, no. This <laughs> is House Dira feel very strongly <laughs> yeah. about being able to take money from any sort of random Israeli business person. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, the party in question is the Pei Fei Fei. Uh, of course. Yes. Uh, Kurt Wilders' yeah. party, which of course uh, is famous for only having one member. Yes. Which is a Mr. G. Wilders. Oh, um, I've never heard, heard of this him? person. No. no. Um, but yeah, and as because of that, it's not eligible for any of the state funding that uh, parties can get. You have to have a thousand uh, paying members uh, to receive that. Therefore, it's more dependent on funding from outside and foreign funding. And we know that in the two years to February 2017, it received 130,280 euros and 38 cents from the David Horowitz Freedom Center in California. Those 38 cents are real important. They are. No, they make all the difference. That's a right-wing think tank. Yeah, it's kind of a right-wing think tank. And uh, David Horowitz has been described by the Southern Poverty Law Center in the States as, quote, a driving force of the anti-Muslim, anti-immigrant, and anti-black movements. So there's a little overlap, maybe, between his agenda and Yeah, they seem to have similar interests. Yeah. So did they have any other uh, recommendations about this? Uh, yes, the committee has uh, said the rules on state funding should be changed so that parties with more representatives get more funding. At the moment, uh, the state support comes in if you've got more than a 1,000 paying members, but it says it should be more based on the number of MPs and senators that a party actually has. Uh, the cabinet hasn't taken a position on this, um, but there is... Um, it has made one other decision, which said it's not going to change the threshold for declaring gifts, which is any gift over the value of four and a half thousand euros. Uh, it's that high? It's yes, very high, yeah. Wow, that's really high. I think, I think the British Parliament is on like 500 pounds. It's much smaller. Yeah, yeah. in the US there was it's a much a lower. Huge scandal with, uh, with yeah, these donations. We right? had the Duck House scandal. Yeah. yeah. So. The Duck House scandal. <laughs> and uh, it turns out that there are uh, penthouses in Scheveningen that, are, that cost less than uh, 4,500 euros. Well, that was a, pri- that was a donation of pr- private capacity, apparently. Yeah, yeah. So it doesn't have to be declared. I would like it. I'll accept a donation if any of our, if any of our listeners want to make a personal donation yeah, to me. Especially for, if it's an apartment in Schäfeninger. Yeah, I'd love for that. Four thousand five hundred euros. I've just received a VOZ VAD on my house, and my god. 
A planned debate on new proposals to tackle climate change was cancelled on Wednesday because VVD leader Klaas Dijkhoff did not attend. Four weeks ago, Dijkhoff, whose party is a member of the government, said in an interview with the Telegraaf that there's a zero percentage chance that his party will carry out the proposals of the climate agreement. This caused a split in the four-party coalition, which opposition parties have been keen to exploit. The debate on Wednesday was on a number of issues, including the government's response to the Urkenda case and the draft climate accord. Opposition MPs decided to boycott the debate when the VVD sent their usual climate spokesperson, Dylan Yesilgus, to parliament instead of Dijkhoff. Labour leader Usher said Dijkhoff should be here to debate about the damage he has inflicted. A new attempt to hold the debate will take place next week. I sort of understood that one of the fundamental duties of your job as an MP and especially as a party group leader was to turn up for debates. So what's going on here? Well, um, Dijkhoff's <laughs> caught Cherry Bourdais syndrome and doesn't <laughs> believe in turning up for debates. Well, the Parliament he, only has the power to demand that ministers attend a debate, but they do not have the power to summon individual MPs. Also, he'd been off the list of speakers. I mean, it, the uh, what's his name? The climate guy had been on the Dylan Yusugos. That's your yeah. uh, MP. Be- Crush. Yeah. yeah, my MP crush. But it had been that she was on the list for speaker for like three or four weeks. I mean, I was a little surprised that they made such a big deal out of Dykoff not being well, there. Well, initially, all the other um, climate spokesperson of the of the parties were on the list. But, you know, this turned into a, a one of these debates that are more about, you know, damaging the coalition yeah. than the mm. actual thoroughly uh, detailed uh, discussion on the climate agreement. So then all of a sudden there's a lot of media attention and that's when the parties decide to send their, you know, charismatic leaders rather than their uh, their experts. Yeah, Yeah. and um, and for the favor day, well, of course, uh, they, they they understand that it is a political debate all of a sudden, but still they they want to downplay it by, uh, by by saying, well, this is still technically a debate on the climate agreement. We are just sending our our climate uh, spokesperson. Yeah, yeah. but they, they could have thought about that before Klaus Kadakov gave his interview to the Telegraph, right? Yeah. Sure, but, but, that, but, but that, that that changed the picture. Really. But but there is there, the, the 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 opposition has no ground to hold the uh, to 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 halt the. Uh, the debate because you know they have no power whatsoever to summon any MPs to the debate, so it just doesn't make any sense. They just want it's just political theater right now. They don't have the power to do it, but I think it's pretty clear that after Dykov had intervened and it had such an effect on the coalition that you couldn't really act as if that hadn't happened. You know, the, that was a key element in the debate. What did he say in this interview that's what caused all of this all puff in the first place? Well, he said that uh, we have this climate uh, agreement. Um, 600 um, measures are proposed. They are now being calculated through by all the, uh, mm. all the calculating agencies we have in the Netherlands. And after that, they come with, a, uh, with an advice. And then after that, we need to make a selection of all these measures in, mm. in order to reduce the CO2 emission in the Netherlands. But Dijkhoff said, I mean, we have these elections coming up. So he wanted to you know, distance himself from this climate agreement so mm. he just basically said in this interview that there is no chance that he will carry out this uh, these measures and he's also willing to you know drop the coalition for it if 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 some parties demand that uh, they will go through with it uh, he, he also called um uh, rob Jette, the leader of d66 a uh, a climate nagger yeah, a climate um, moaner, climate yeah. moaner. Something. so that that really Winger. um that, mm. that really damaged the coalition that's true um 
so but but now the co uh, opposition is not interested anymore in a in a thorough debate on the theaters they just want to damage the coalition right now and that that is what what happened so i was in the, in the tweede kamer when when this happened uh, and uh, the debate before that was on the uh, child amnesty which we are going to talk about mm. uh, after the discussion and geert wilder started the uh, the um the debate with demanding that uh, all the other uh, party leaders would come for the debate um but then Tweede Kamer uh, leader, uh, Tweede Kamer chairwoman Arip said, well, you, we cannot do that. I mean, all the parties, all the MPs decide for their own who's, mm -hmm. who's coming to the debate. They're going to represent them in the debate. Yeah. Um, so I think that was the point when Lodewijk Asher thought, hey, we could also do this. And well, in the afternoon, um, he demanded that Dijkhoff would come. And then we had this little piece of um, political theater. Mm. So instead of debating on the climate agreement, we... Uh, don't have anything. Well, we had a debate about why there wasn't a debate. Yeah, yeah. yeah. exactly. But they've rescheduled this debate tentatively for next week, right? Well, they uh, rescheduled it for next week, but it's still unclear if Dijkhoff is going to come because, well, he decides on on his own um, if he's coming or not. Yeah. Mm. So, I want to be able to decide if I can show up for work or not, just uh, on my own. Yeah, me too. Yeah, well, I'd, I'd like nice. to decide whether I could show up for this podcast or not. Yeah, also. me too. Yeah. <laughs> and I can't. You guys just keep turning up in my <laughs> 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 There's a lot of uh, art news this week. Get it? Because we're going to talk about Rubens and Rembrandt. No? Okay. No, no, Anyway. No, go home. Can, Can we this out, please? The yes, Moritz House in The Hague has announced this week that researchers are looking into whether two paintings attributed to Rembrandt are actually by the Dutch painter at all. The 17th century paintings Study of an Old Man and Trony of an Old Man were purchased as genuine Rembrandts in uh, 1891 and 1892. Over the years, doubts have grown over the attribution of the images, which represented characters or emotional states, quote, tronies, rather than specific individuals. They currently are credited by Rembrandt, question mark, um, in the museum. Meanwhile, a drawing by Peter Paul Rubens of a young man owned by Princess Christina has been sold at an auction in New York for $8.2 million, which included $1.2 million in auction costs. The drawing plus other works of art raised uh, some total 8 million euros for the princess, who is the youngest sister of the former Queen Beatrix. Yeah. Whose birthday it was yesterday. Yes, it was. It was, yes. So happy birthday. Uh, I Congratulations. Her, I saw her limousine uh, standing uh, outside the Maurits house. Oh. Did it have balloons on it? No, I was oh. hanging there. I was trying to hang balloons on them, but the Mars Shady uh, really didn't really appreciate really? them. I can't yeah. imagine why. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but the uh, Ruben sale was a bit controversial, wasn't it? Yeah, we talked about this a few weeks ago, I think, on the podcast. Mm. Uh, the works come from the collection of King Willem II of the Netherlands, who died in 1849. Willem and his Russian wife, Anna Pavlovna, together assembled a huge collection of paintings and drawings, including works by Michelangelo, Raphael, Leonardo da Vinci, Rubens, and Rembrandt. The sale has been widely criticized in the Netherlands because the drawings were not first offered to the Dutch state or to domestic museums. Uh, the buyer is said to be a very wealthy U.S. collector, named by some as Leon Black, who's the former owner of Chiquita Bananas. And I read yesterday that uh, the, the the, the Dutch state did bid for uh, the drawings. They, they had about a million euros left uh, in the kitty and decided not to uh, keep bidding. Yeah, yeah not so, to keep bidding. Yeah. Yeah. So whether they just, why that was, I'm not quite sure. Yeah. Cyclists caught using their mobile phone without a hands-free kit will face a fine of 95 euros from July 1st, according to Parole, quoting sources in The Hague. The size of the fine is in line with other penalties for cyclists, which include 100 euros for cycling while drunk and 95 euros for cycling through a red light. 
Motorists face a 240 euros fine for using their phone while driving. Transport Minister Cora van Nieuwenhuizen published draft legislation in September, making it an offense to hold a mobile electronic device while driving all vehicles. So that includes bikes. Mm -hmm. um, the words mobile electronic device rather than mobile phone were deliberately chosen to take developments in the future into account. Nearly half of the cyclists are said to use their phones while cycling, and phones are said to have played a role in 20% of bike accidents involving the under-25s. So uh, do you ever use your... Mobile phone while cycling? No, but Molly uses her mobile phone while she's podcasting, which is why we keep getting weird bleeping noises. <laughs> uh, I use my phone while cycling all the damn time. So yeah, I yeah. have been known to do this as well, I must yeah. admit. Me too. Um, yeah, and I have to say, that given the experience of uh, how often people get fined for things like not having lights on their bike and going through red lights, I doubt that this is actually going to make any difference at all to people's not cycling habits. I completely agree with that, Yes, yeah, so as I use my phone while podcasting. <laughs> um, but cycling while drunk, I don't know if anyone has ever been fined. <laughs> I would love to know that as well, because I'm I'm sure I've. This is another thing I read recently that almost every when they do occasionally do spot breath tests um, of cyclists on the way. The two things: one, it causes massive what pef because people think it's outrageous that the police are stopping cyclists. Yeah. And secondly, almost everyone who's breathalysed has had something to drink. Not everyone's over the limit, but almost everyone who's breathalysed coming home late at night has had a drink. Definitely, yeah. <laughs> that's why you go on a bike because it's unsafe <laughs> exactly, to, yeah. to drive while while being drunk. So yeah, that's why you take your you take your bike, of course. Uh, have you so, ever been fined for uh, being drunk? I've never been fined for anything bike related. And I never bike with yeah. bike lights ever. Yeah, me neither. The well, only time I ever bike with bike lights is when Niels and I are biking together somewhere. Because and Niels he, insists, and he he insists and puts them on my bike. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so. I think what will happen is what happens like when they dig up your road and everyone cycles onto the pavement. So the first day, the Umpton Aaron come down, they fine everyone yeah. who cycled on the pavement. And then after day two, it just goes back to everyone cycling on the pavement. Exactly. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. So, yeah. so on the 1st yeah. of July, don't cycle while, yeah. or don't phone while cycling. And then after that, after it that, won't you'll matter. Be fine. Yeah. Or you will be fined. <laughs> In sports news, Feyenoord threw a grenade under Ajax's title hopes by dismantling their great rivals 6-2 in last weekend's Klasica. Robin van Persie was the star of the show. Despite being 35 years old and fighting a rolling battle with injuries, he scored two goals and provided the turning point of the game when he set up Jens Tornstra's 16th-minute equaliser. Ajax coach Erik ten Hag refused to concede the title to PSV, insisting that the five-point gap can be overhauled, but admitted that, quote, the atmosphere is bad and everyone is deeply disappointed. PSV ground out a 2-1 win against Groningen on Saturday to move clear of Ajax. This weekend, Ajax host VVV Venlo on Saturday, while PSV are also at home to Fortuna Sittard on Sunday. Uh, haven't Ajax just sold a defender for 75 million euros? A defensive midfielder, technically, but Frankie de Jong, yes, indeed, has gone to Barcelona and now in a team that's conceded 10 goals in the last two games, which Ajax haven't done since 1959. What is the news about uh, uh, John van den Brom? John van den Brom, who's 52 years old and manager of Asset Alkmaar, has signed a three-year contract with SC Utrecht. <gasps> He's going to take season, over for Dick Advocaat. He's the man who has been appointed to to, to, to fill the seat, the, the, the hallowed... Uh, uh, <laughs> Dick Lawyer seat. The throne. The throne. Yeah, but yeah. his name is really boring. Yeah, it's, it's terrible. terrible. Yeah, yeah. He's, He's not going to name him Dick Lawyer. But, but uh, it means that Dick Lawyer can now finally retire and uh, go and... He will, he'll never he'll never he will never retire. He will never retire. No, he'll just going to coach something else. He'll be a rotating pundit or something. Yeah, he, exactly. he won't go away. So, uh, yeah. final one from Ajax with uh, six two, mm -hmm. and uh, they uh, need to play uh, uh, again. Yeah, the they're playing uh, in the cup. This is true. Yeah. Uh, do you know when the ticket sale will start? Uh, no. The sixth of February. Uh huh. Which is in Dutch. Six date. two. Indeed. Yes. Yes. Uh -huh. <laughs> I thought it was really fun, was but uh, you do not agree at all. No, I thought it was great fun. I don't have any idea what you're talking about. 
The Netherlands' most popular amusement park said on Wednesday it's going to overhaul the appearance of some of its controversial African and Asian characters to, quote, better fit in with today's standards. The Efteling's Carnival Festival fairground ride is to close for three months uh, for a technical update, and they will take the opportunity to revamp the animatronics, which are criticized for being yellow and blackface stereotypes. Uh, does this mean we'll be seeing an update to uh, Monsieur Cannibal? Uh, no, no plans have been made to update the Monsieur Cannibal attraction in which uh, visitors sit in a cooking pot presided over by a so-called cannibal in, like, stereotypical garb. Mm. The uh, the attraction is 31 years old, uh, so when it comes up for a refit, uh, adaptions to the, that character will also be considered. I am I'm really happy that uh, Carnival Festival is, uh, is, is closed down for three months, but only because that would mean that we don't have to listen to that awful music from that attraction anymore. That's that's true. Right. Are you planning on going to the Efteling in the next three months? Uh, I think so. Yeah. Huh. No. I've I mean, never been. I mean, I'm I'm Dutch, so I have to. I'm I'm contractually obliged yes. to go there every month. Oh really? Otherwise, you lose your passport. I've yeah. never been. I need to take my kids actually, since they've got Dutch passports. That's true. They yeah. should go. They've never been either. Yeah. Uh, do you want to go? I want to go. I, I want to go. Sh- we should go. We, uh, we need to have a podcast day out. We should do an outshit to the yeah. Efteling. That's fine. If if you want to donate us money, this so we can go to. Yeah, the I tell you what. If the listeners yeah. want us to do a live ridiculous yeah. podcast from the Efteling, they have to kick us enough money to cover yeah. the cost of We're our. We're going to start a crowdfunder yeah. today. Send us an email if you're willing to kick in some cash, and we'll go to the Efteling. Are there any rides that you particularly want to go into? I mean, all of the racist ones, so oh, I can I can yeah, comment on that. Uh, what's, also, what's, what's I want to get favorite ride. What's the Dromflug? That's right. We need to go on that yes. as well. I want to yeah. um, go to the the pooping donkey gold thing. Right? There's like these horrible. Let's <laughs> do all that. We'll so. do a live podcast from the Efteling uh, if our listeners want to kick us on the money to go to the Efteling. We'll be discussing child amnesty after this word from our sponsors. Here in Holland is the podcast in English about life with the Dutch. Stories to make you laugh, cry, pull your hair out or jump for joy. Every two weeks, available in your favourite podcast app, on Spotify or at hereinholland.com. The four coalition parties have reached an agreement on giving residency rights to some 630 well-rooted child refugees and will abolish the amnesty after their cases have been solved. As we discussed last week, there were questions about the government's stability after the CDA's shift on its position on child amnesty threatened to destabilize the current four-party governing coalition. So, what happened this week, and will Rutte see out his third government? So, uh, what exactly is this child amnesty situation to begin with? Well, so for anyone who wasn't listening last week, which you should go back and listen to our discussion last week, you can hear more about it. What has been happening is is that the asylum application procedure takes a tremendous amount of time, and if families aren't granted asylum, children are deported to countries that they haven't been to, they don't speak the language after growing up in the Netherlands because they've been here so long during this application procedure. In 2013, the government set forth new rules for asylum for children. Children can qualify for the amnesty if they've lived in the Netherlands for more than five years, if they've been under the supervision of an official organization and they're under the age of 18. Right, but in practice almost no kids actually were granted amnesty under this scheme, right? Yeah, in total 740 of the 2140 children who have applied for a permit via the amnesty since it was established six years ago have been granted the right to stay but most of them were granted refugee status before 2013. Only a handful have been successful since then. Yeah, but compounding the problem is the fact that actually almost none of the kids who have been denied asylum have actually left the country because the CDR pointed out this is why it's not working. Yeah, yeah, yeah they're, they're not leaving. A number of them have sort of like disappeared the the Mm. government can't find them um a number of them have kind of turned up in other places where they're sort of protesting leaving they you know they're in churches and those kinds of things Mm. 
Uh, but why is the system so difficult then? Well, according to the 2013 agreement, being in touch with local councils and going to school isn't sufficient to qualify for the amnesty because these bodies don't have an official role in immigration policy. So therefore, they're like not considered being under the supervision of a body, which is part of the deal. Yeah, but that- the thing is that these children are too rooted into this country and isn't school and things like that. No, they're not considered part of like the process of being rooted because they're not part of the immigration system. You have to have contact, be under the supervision of the immigration system. And so children are ruled ineligible if their parents like don't cooperate with deporting them, which no. like rules out basically everyone. If you miss an appointment with IND, you're considered not cooperating. I mean, the rules are extremely strict. And yeah. so basically it's just made it impossible. So it's very, very rigid. So you can be yeah. fully integrated in society. You can speak Dutch fluently. You can yeah. have lots of friends and actually have no knowledge of or memory of living anywhere else or being in any other society. And yet you're still considered basically an alien yeah and and if you miss one train which is part of being rooted into this country then (laughs) then you're not eligible no you're not eligible anymore so this is why there's been so many problems and they're saying that like yeah the kids aren't qualifying. They've been here for years and years. Many of them were born here. They've never even been to the countries that they're being threatened with being deported to. And so rather than going back, they're going into hiding, they're doing other stuff, and it's just creating this like massive issue. Yeah. But why has it all come to a head in the last couple of weeks? Because it seems to be like a rolling problem that pops up every few years. Yeah. So there have been a number of like really high profile cases, including the case of Howark and Lily, two Armenian children who went into hiding after their asylum claim was rejected. There's this case of this family that's been living in a church in The Hague where they've been having 96 weeks 90, of straight... No, 96 days. 96, yeah, 96 days of straight prayer service because mm-hmm. there's an antiquated Dutch law that says you can't interrupt a yeah, the, ongoing religious service in the That's probably a Napoleon thing. Yeah. yeah. No, it's from the Middle Ages. It's oh, not really? even a Napoleon <laughs> thing. It's like that old. Mm. Uh, so this church has taken in this family and then they're just having an ongoing service, which mm. means like... the yeah, govern- Napoleon wasn't a fan of a church. No, America. not a big fan. So this has caused a bunch of like uproar from the Dutch public, basically. There was a TV in interview with Lily and, and Horwick and mm. you know they're on TV they speak perfectly fluent Dutch they're well integrated and they sort of are still being threatened with deportation I mean even Hain Style who is not known for its pro-immigration policy standing came out yeah. and said that those kids should be allowed to stay yeah and as we mentioned last week politicians don't often seem to not understand that when people actually look at individual cases and families and kids they have a very different attitude to them if than if they're just talking about numbers, numbers. of refugees yeah. yeah so initially the Day Sessestug and the Christian Uni wanted a more lenient approach to child amnesty while the Sede and the Baby Day were kind of opposed. Then there was a big petition, I think this was like a month ago, which garnered uh, like a quarter of a million signatures calling for the government to kind of reconsider its current policy. Not directly in response to this, but around the same time, basically the Sedea switched its position, which left the coalition in a bit of a precarious position because now three parties in the coalition were in favor of more lenient child amnesty rules, only the Veve Day was against, and there was a lot of discussion about whether or not this was going to cause the coalition government to fall. Yeah, and I think the Sedea switch was down to a couple of reasons. One was that in the week previously, class day had destabilized the coalition with his statements on the environment and yeah. the CDR had said well in that case we're going to have a rethink on, yeah. on another policy yeah. as well yeah. uh, and they picked child amnesty and also I think within the CDR there's been ongoing tension and debate where a lot of the members particularly out in the provinces are unhappy about the fact that the, the leadership has taken a more kind of populist right wing hardline stance on immigration when actually they consider themselves compassionate Christians who want to help people yeah and of course we have these number of, of cases the Lillian Howick situation and the church thing that really pushed them to reconsider their mm. position on the child amnesty thing. 
So uh, what exactly is an agreement that has been reached uh, this week? So what happened this week is, is that on Monday, the four parties met and they discussed the issue of child amnesty. The talks were described as, quote, constructive. Um, and they said that, quote, progress was made, according to party leaders. Who was it? Seabra? No, it was, uh, was it Harry Young Sagers or Buma yeah. said, like, but we're not saying anything else because we mm. want the discussion to continue. On Thursday, they announced the agreement. In the agreement, it says the government will give residency rights to some 630 well-rooted child refugees, and then it will abolish the amnesty after these cases have been solved. So basically what will happen is, is that this amnesty procedure where if your asylum... It's like a special exemption, yeah, isn't it, really? If, so if your asylum yeah. case is rejected, you can be granted this sort of amnesty exception, mm. and that is going to go away. As it stands right now, the deputy justice minister can grant like emergency asylum, which is what happened in the case of Lillian Horwick. Yeah, um, power of discretion. Yeah, they're going to remove that from this position it's no longer going to be possible the government is going to give more money and funding and sort of resources to the immigration service so that they can process asylum claims faster so the idea is basically that like you're not going to end up with these children being here for extended periods of time because their asylum claims will be processed much faster so if they don't have a credible right to asylum in this country then they'll be processed out after you know a year or two years rather than 10 or 12 years there's a couple other like small things the netherlands is going to take fewer kids via a un resettlement scheme um so they had agreed to take 750 50 children under this scheme and they're only going to take 500. And instead of being able to have like a discretionary power sitting with this justice minister, there's going to be an, a, a panel, basically the immigration service. No, there's no a panel. panel. It's just going to be the director of the immigration service. So that's that's a public servant who is uh, going to be responsible for this. But uh, the, the thing is, this person uh, has to report to the junior justice minister. So mm. in a way, <laughs> the justice minister will still be responsible for this power it of discretion. Yeah, yeah, so it's, a, it's a bit of a reshuffling that, that doesn't really make sense. Yeah, it's reshuffling the deck, isn't it? You still have to have ministerial responsibility for what is a political uh, decision. Yeah, in the yeah day. exactly. Yeah. yeah. But um, it's it's sort of, I think, is a bit what we talked about last week. Like, they have to do something about the kids that are here and then hopefully fix the system. But it seems like a bit of a sticking plaster solution to me, really, that, uh, okay, they've now granted amnesty to these 630 kids, but further down the line, you're still going to have these kids who are here and the people are still going to make asylum claims and there's still going to have to be an appeals process. You can't just kick people out. And also, even when you decide that people shouldn't stay, if they physically actually don't go, you've still got the problem. Yeah. And, and while they're in the country, they still have to go to school, they still have to have healthcare and all the rest yeah, of it. Yeah, but the thing yeah. is now is they agree that there will never be a child amnesty ever again. No, there won't be a child amnesty but there will still be, for example, one of the problems that um, uh, the CDR highlighted was that there was about 200 kids who had been told that uh, they had no right of uh, asylum but their families still stayed in the country and sometimes people can't go back because you can only go back if the country you came from agrees to receive you. And there's a whole lot of countries out there that just don't take people back so yeah. they're left yeah. in this limbo. Yeah, exactly. yeah the Kroonlings MP Ram Van Oyek described the deal as miserly horse trading on Twitter it's kind of gotten mixed reviews like most things in politics defense for children which campaigns for child rights welcomed the new agreement but said many questions remained unanswered like how will officials choose which children fall under this agreement and which will not which seems like a Pretty basic question. Mm. The Dutch refugee organization Vluchtelingenwerk and the UN's refugee agency, the UNHCR, Nederland, both said that they were pleased that the problem of well-rooted children had been solved, but that it was a real pity that this had to be offset against a reduction of the number of child refugees that they were going to take under this US scheme. Um, also, they ended the 96 days of continuous mm -hmm. service in the church because it seems that those children will be able to yeah. stay. Stay. Yeah. stay. So what do we kind of think overall? Well, apparently they uh, reached an agreement where every party can agree with. Yeah. Uh, there, there, there's a win for every party. 
So in that sense, in the in 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 terms of the uh, coalition uh, stability, it's it's an excellent agreement. But still, I think the, in, in on the long term, the stability of the cabinet is really hurt because you know they don't really like each other yeah, anymore. They don't trust each other. They don't trust each other anymore. Um, yeah. So I think it's a, it's a real danger that within a year or so we we will have new elections. Yeah, yeah I, think, I think after certainly after the um, provincial elections, the new senators chosen, that's going to even weaken coalition so further. And it's kind of been started to look like you know watching an episode of uh, Viesta Mole, you know which of the parties is going to pull the plug. Yeah, pull the right. And for a long time, you kind of thought when you first looked at the coalition when it was set up, you thought one of the middle parties, the CDR, the Days and Zestech, were going to fall out with each other and get isolated in the coalition. What you didn't expect was the Fefe Day would get isolated. Yeah, but that's what's happened. Yeah. Because yeah. the other three parties are now all in favour of a milder policy on refugees. Yeah. And that's put the favour day in a really awkward spot. And given that they are the majority party, yeah. you can easily see... It seems like a short-term solution and not yeah. really a long-term solution. It's kind of kicking the it's can kicking down the, the road. It's kicking the can down the road, yeah. that's yeah. exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it'll be fine for a couple of years. And yeah. then you'll see in a few years that you're going to have another case. Or But but yeah, the idea behind the, or the reason that uh, favour day supports this, this agreement is that we will no longer have talk show amnesty. Yeah. Like the Lillian Howick case. Yeah. Yeah. They managed. To, to get the attention of the media and because of that they were allowed to stay but you know there are so many other children and similar cases that are not able to generate so much media attention yeah. and for them it still remains very painful and now I'm, I'm happy that they will be allowed to stay but yeah what you say within a few years yeah. we will have another group of children that, are, that have been grown up yeah. and that have yeah. been living in the Netherlands for so many years and then all of a sudden we have the same problem and if the child amnesty is you know banned whatsoever then we don't have any brute force methods yeah. to, mm-hmm. to allow them to stay. Yeah, and it does feel like a kind of painkiller solution that is, it, it, it's taken the, the heat out of the issue for the next couple of years. There won't be any of these cases now because all these families will get amnesty. But yeah, uh, as time goes by, there'll be new cases and there'll be new problems to resolve. But they're kind of hoping that that won't come up again during the life of this coalition. Yeah, I mean, I think overall it's like a hard problem to fix because mm. if you have a more open door policy, then more people are going to want to come, right? So like, if you have a situation where people know that the Netherlands is probably going to take you in if you have a small child, that you are more likely to try to make it to the Netherlands than to try to make it to some other country in Europe. So it encourages people who are fleeing yeah, terrible situations to come. Yeah, that's what Piers said in the debate. He said you're basically inviting everybody in, yeah. in Africa and in the Middle East to come here because they know now that within a few years you, you will be allowed to stay. Yeah. Even though you've been told many years ago that, that you're not allowed to stay yeah. and you still remain here then within a few years you'll be allowed to stay yeah. and a lot of people feel that way uh, uh, as well yet, in the Netherlands and yet when you look at actually numbers trying to come to the Netherlands it's actually pretty small yeah. and I was oh, remember, sure, uh, definitely. You know, yeah. I remember uh, Kader Abdullah wrote um, a, a book for the Buchenweg uh, years ago which was kind of about his experience of emigrating from Iran to the Netherlands and he actually didn't he, he didn't know where it was when he first came here yeah. he literally knew nothing about the country and he said there was a list he was in Turkey for a while in the kind of transit camp and there was a list of kind of places that people tried to get to and top of the list was the United States and then Britain and Sweden and the Netherlands was right down the bottom it's like he said <laughs> if you had $10,000 you would try and get to the States if you had $8,000 you'd go to Sweden or Germany and if you had about two grand then you go to the Netherlands. Netherlands yeah. yeah, it was one of the least attractive places. Yeah, I mean, I don't agree with Wilders that this is from sort of like crazy open door <laughs> policy because it's clearly not. And even if it was, even if the Mark Rutte came out tomorrow and was like, we will take all the refugees, those people who are in dire straits and have no money and are like running away Sorry, from you mean what? They're in dire straits. Could Did you, you see really that? Use uh, yes. How do we get Mark not <laughs> into this? <laughs> Um, you know, they still have to get here, right? And, like, that's just not feasible for the vast majority of people who are in 
dire straits in places <laughs> like Africa and the Middle East, right? So, I mean, I don't agree with Wilders on this. But it is, I mean, in terms of like solving the problem that exists here, I think it's really difficult to have a system that both is not going to cause a bunch of outrage when you have kids who are born and raised here and speak impeccable Dutch and, you know, are going to school here and look just like every other Dutch child, like wandering around on the streets. Um, not that there's a lot of Dutch children wandering around on the streets, <laughs> but whatever. And that, you know, but still are going to have some sort of effective system of evaluating like asylum claims. So uh, yeah, I mean, I think that this is the best solution that they're going to get, which is to kick the can down the road yeah. and then in five years revisit it and then kick the can down the road again until there's like, I don't know, some yeah. sort of grander worldwide immigration adjustment. Yeah, which they tried to do, of course, with this Marrakesh agreement a couple of years ago, and that all fell apart because all the part, all, all the nationalist um, politicians in uh, the various European countries uh, kicked up a stink about yeah. it. So that's not happening either. Yeah, um, I mean, fundamentally, like we would be better off if you could come up with ways to keep countries from destabilizing and yeah. being in horrible, destitute poverty, and then those people wouldn't want to move here in the first place, right? I mean, most of these people, they don't want to come here because they think like the weather and the food is really great. They want to come here because they don't have any other options and they're starving mm. and their children are dying. So like if we could, as a society, figure out ways to sort of like improve the economic opportunities for people living in Eritrea and like, I don't know, keep Bashar al-Assad from murdering everyone in his country then you would have fewer refugees. The so, uh, American interventionist is uh, speaking here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I'm not necessarily <laughs> arguing pro-interventionist. I mean, but, and Iraq. but perhaps it's better if we, like, stay the hell out of these places. I mean, that also could be the answer. Well, unless we are in, pro in trouble. Then, right. then it's fine yeah. if you uh, come and interfere. In. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, but this does seem to be an issue that uh, sooner or later throws a spanner in the works of every coalition. Is it? The yeah. last coalition, the, the Faith Day Labour coalition, almost fell over the Bepat Brot, uh, yeah. the Bed and Board ruling five years ago and that's yeah. where the amnesty came from so yeah, yeah i think the next coalition is going to have problems with it as well it's really yeah. hard for like even the hardest anti-immigration hardliners to look at like a seven-year-old kid and be like nah we think you should go back to some country that we know is not a great place to grow up mm. like belgium belgium for yeah. example <laughs> and so it just puts people in a really really difficult spot yeah. yeah. And you think fundamentally, what is the point of actually investing time and resources in educating children you know, right through school and then saying, right, we'll send you off to another country now? Who benefits from that, yeah. really? Me personally, <laughs> because I hate children. Yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah, apart from you. Apart from me. Yeah. yeah. That's all that we have for you this week. This podcast is a production of Dutch News, which can be found online at dutchnews.nl. We will include links to everything we've talked about today in the liner notes. You can get in touch with us by email to podcast at dutchnews.nl. If you want to help us out, please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and also send us some money so we can go to the F to Yes, please. My thanks to Gordon Derrick and Paul Paters. I'm Molly Quell. We'll be back next week.